Hey everybody, we're so glad you joined us today. No matter how you found us, we're glad you found us because everybody is welcome here at Menlo Church and that means you. Nobody's perfect and anything is possible. So we hope you will enjoy this message. Let's take a look. Here at Menlo, we say everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect and anything's possible. All of these phrases describe our hope of seeing the Bay Area transformed into a place where Jesus is in every workplace, classroom, home, relationship, and heart. This is because we believe Jesus changes absolutely everything. Imagine what could happen in a job if one person came to know and love Jesus. How would emails change? How would the meaning behind the work change? How would this difference begin to make its way into every corner of her organization? Imagine if a dad became a Christian and how that would transform generations of that family. Through this one dad, his family could experience unconditional love, freedom from shame or addiction, forgiveness and joy, and a sense of purpose. Imagine whole streets being transformed by a neighbor who knows Jesus and loves each neighbor despite their differences. Imagine a classroom transformed by a teacher who, like Jesus, welcomes children to come and learn. This teacher demonstrates consistency, love, patience, and invests into the kinds of people that these kids would grow up to be. The good news is that we serve a God who does more than we could ever ask or imagine. We believe that God is up to something right here, and that He is calling us to reach more people in the Bay Area through Menlo Church over the coming years. We are praying and believing that God has called us to make an exponential impact on the rest of the Bay Area. And you, you get to be a part of that. So what does that mean for us as we get to lead, explore, work, and serve in such a way that we get to be a part of God's plan? We have a front row seat to see Him do what only He can do, the work of helping anyone and everyone find and follow Jesus. Well, I'm so glad that you're here. I want to welcome everybody in this room and say hi to everybody at all of our campuses, people joining us online. Uh, I'm very excited about what we get to talk about today. When I went to grad school, my main degree was in psychology, and I thought that I would become a psychologist. But when I started to do therapy, I did not enjoy it very much, and I was not very good at it. And the longer people saw me, the unhealthier they got. <laughs> not a good quality in a therapist. And then I started working very part-time as a pastor, and I felt this strange tug to devote myself to the life, well-being, flourishing of the local church. And when I would talk to people in the field of psychology, I don't think any of them said, yeah, if you want to change people's lives, go work at a church. But I found myself just haunted and captivated and often inspired by the idea, the mission of the church. And if you follow Jesus, he wants you to be as well. One of my heroes is a man now well in his 90s named Frederick Buechner. Uh, he grew up in a very unchurched family. Uh, his dad committed suicide when he was a young boy. He became a brilliant writer, lived in a quite sophisticated, very non-religious East Coast community. And against all odds, one day in a large church in New York, he met Jesus. And he ended up going to seminary and becoming a Presbyterian minister. This was very puzzling very disorienting to his family, to people in his little world. Uh, he was at a dinner party one day when a very well-educated, well-meaning woman turned to him. 
I hear you are entering the ministry, she said. Was it your own idea or were you poorly advised? And then he writes this. And the answer she could not have heard, even if I had given it, was that it was not an idea at all, neither my own nor anybody else's. It was a lump in the throat. It was an itching in my feet. It was a stirring in the blood. It was the name which, when I wrote it out in a dream, I knew was a name worth dying for, even if I was not brave enough to do the dying myself and could not even name the name for sure. Come unto me, Jesus said, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you a high and driving peace. I will give you a purpose worth living for and a hope worth dying for. And that is all expressed in the church. The church is his idea, his legacy, his family, somehow his presence on earth. Think about this. Where else can people go to learn the value of every single human life made in God's image? The offer of the forgiveness of sin, the promise of a resurrection, the demands of God's holy justice, the triumph of God's ultimate purpose. So I want to talk today about the beauty of the church and our church in particular, and why it matters. I want to start by taking you back to the very first conversation in history about the church. A lot of people don't know where did this idea come from. One day, Jesus asked his disciples who they thought he was, and Peter says to him, you're the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus blesses Peter. Now, this would not be unusual. Rabbis in that day would often bless their student for getting a right answer. But what Jesus goes on to say would have come as a great surprise. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, which means the rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome my church. One scholar says this last statement is the most discussed verse in the most discussed paragraph in the entire Gospel of Matthew. I will build my church. Now, the disciples' first response would have been, what's a church? This is the first time we ever see this word, not just in the Bible, but in human history. No religious leader ever said anything like this. Moses never said, I'm going to build my synagogue. The Buddha didn't say, I'm going to build my temple. Muhammad did not say, I'm going to build my mosque. In the ancient world, there were tribal religions. There were philosophical schools. There were wisdom traditions. This was different. Jesus was saying he was going to build an all-inclusive community of love that would not just tolerate but embrace every gender, every ethnicity, every nationality, every culture, every language, every status that would make a family of enemies like save versus slave versus free or Jew versus Gentile or Roman versus barbarian, a community that would have as its mission not the enriching of its own members, but their sacrificing of themselves for the enrichment of people on the outside to bring the knowledge of God to every person and the justice of God to every oppressive situation and the generosity of God to every need and the forgiveness of God even to those who would persecute the church. And they would do this with a humility that would bow to honor the most demeaned and humiliated slave and a courage that would defy the threat of the emperor Nero while continuing to pray for him. 
Do you all understand, not only had nothing like this ever been in existence before, nothing like this had ever been thought of before. Jesus thought this up. We often think that we kind of invented innovation in the Bay Area and Silicon Valley. So let me give you a challenge. Let's say you were a penniless carpenter 2,000 years ago, and your task was to create a movement that would live for thousands of years, that would launch more hospitals, more research universities, more relief organizations, and inspire more art than anything in human history, that would spread to every continent, every culture, attract billions of followers, and not only still exist, but be growing 2,000 years later. What would you do? What would your first step be? Jesus, the carpenter, whatever you think of him as a matter of history, did this. He loved and he taught and he healed and he died unforgettably on a cross and they say he was resurrected. Now this passage is the first time the disciples get a glimpse of how big Jesus is, his identity. Truly, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. And now they're ready for their first glimpse of how big his project is going to be on earth. And his project is the church. That's it. That's the whole thing. Jesus is putting all of his eggs in the church basket. And he's going to do that through them. And their heads had to be ready to explode. They did not sign up for the church building business. They signed up for the rabbi following business. Lots of guys signed up for that. You learn Torah. You follow the rules. You attract a nice wife. You raise a nice family. You live a nice life. But build something no one had ever heard of sacrifice time, money, energy, have people laugh at you, run risks, get persecuted, have to go all around the world, go to jail, end up being martyred. Hey, Peter, was this your idea or were you badly advised? Only here's the thing. This is the chance of a lifetime. This is worth living for. This is worth dying for. This made catching fish or collecting taxes, or living to make money, or gain security, or make a name for yourself, or build a resume, look awfully small. A couple of key items for us to notice. Who's the church going to belong to? Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. He didn't say, I'm going to build some churches, Peter's church and Andrew's church and Thomas's church for doubting people, Zacchaeus's church for small people. We are Jesus's church. We love him, we study him, we follow him, we point other people to him. We have one purpose, to help people find and follow this man, Jesus, because there's never been anybody like him. Who's going to build Jesus' church? Jesus says, I will build my church. Jesus claims he will be on this. Really, I was thinking, if you've been around churches much, have you ever noticed how messed up churches can get? Not just attenders, church leaders can be some of the most messed up, dysfunctional, emotionally unhealthy, needy, maladapted people in the world. And I know, my wife has been married for one of them for years. She could tell you stories that would curl your hair. How does the church keep going? Jesus is building it. Often he's building it in secret, unseen places, at the margins, through the poor in spirit, through those that mourn, through the uneducated, through an unpaid volunteer who nobody but Jesus thinks is important at all, through a little group of people who are selflessly praying, 
through a widow whose tiny offering is in reality, in God's eyes, the biggest gift of all, through people like you, Jesus is building his church. How powerful is the church going to be? Extremely powerful. Uh, The expression, the gates of Hades, is how ancient people would talk about ultimate human enemies, death and hell itself. And Jesus is remarkably confident. He doesn't say, when the forces of hell are unleashed, the gates of the church will be able to keep hell out. He says, when the forces of the church are unleashed, the gates of hell will not be able to keep the church out. He's saying, guys, the church is on the march now with forces the likes of which the world has not seen. Love, mercy, grace, compassion, forgiveness, justice, generosity, truth, humility have been unleashed and the gates of Hades will crumple before them and the darkness is going down. Doesn't look like it, but it is. And I don't know, but I wonder if there is a moment where the disciples of Jesus responded one by one now that they know what this Jesus church project is. I'm in. I'm in. I got to be a part of this. I got to be in on this. What would this church be like, this church thing that nobody would ever heard of, that nobody would ever thought of? And Jesus begins to teach and model three great truths about humanity under the reign of God, God's project of community, that would begin to take that community from little Israel, where it had kind of been in a kind of an incubator, in a sense, and, and release it into a worldwide movement. And these three great truths involve phrases that are core to our identity as a church. You'll hear them around here. What you may not know about them is they actually come directly from Jesus. They are essentially what Jesus did to bring the movement, the people of God, from that little incubator in Israel, that one culture, into a movement that would change the world. And the first great truth that Jesus modeled and taught was, now, through Jesus, everybody's welcome. In Jesus' day, it was commonly thought that certain people were welcome in the temple, welcome to come before God, and others not so much. And if there is one characteristic about Jesus that was his signature, that scandalized everybody, it was how he, this great rabbi, would love, embrace, include, talk with, touch anybody who would come to him. Jews, Gentiles, Samaritans, lepers, the unclean, beggars, slaves, tax collectors, Roman soldiers, paralytics, prostitutes, demon-possessed. He's so famous for this, even his opponents acknowledge it. One man trying to trap him said, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth and show deference to no one. Jesus was known for this. For you do not regard people with partiality, anybody that comes. He's so famous for this, he was heavily criticized for it. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. What kind of religious man is that? That's basically what got him killed. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, his last recorded conversation before he died was not with a saint, not a follower. It was a criminal, a thief that's hanging on the cross next to him who just says to him in his dying moment, remember me. And Jesus says, okay, you too, you're in, you're with me. It's like he couldn't help himself. This is his community, see? Often not thought of that way in our day, but this is what he was starting. And after he died, the strangest thing happened to his community. Again, whatever you may think about it, the ancient world generally had no regard for slaves. Slavery was ubiquitous virtually every society. The Greek philosopher Aristotle said all non-Greeks were slaves by birth. 
Slaves generally could be tortured, degraded, used for sex, killed for growing old or growing useless. But this odd little community called the church remembered how their founder, Jesus, one day took a basin of water and washed his disciples' feet as though he were a slave and said, now you do this too. And they actually cherished slaves. They actually called themselves slaves for Jesus. They were so well known for this that Christianity was sometimes called by its opponents a slave religion. And you understand that was not intended as a compliment, but they wore it like it was a badge of honor. Yep, that's us. Slaves are us. One observer noted, any slaves they may have among them, they persuade to become Christian because of their love toward them. They become brothers without discrimination. The ancient world had little use generally for the poor. But this strange little community called the church remembered that Jesus said in Luke 6, blessed are the poor. They remember Jesus once told a rich young ruler to sell everything and give it to the poor. And they welcomed the poor so much that a Roman emperor who was opposed to Christianity said this about why the church kept spreading. He said, I think when the poor were overlooked by the pagan priests, the impious Galileans, they were Christians because they were not pious towards all the Roman gods, noticed this and devoted themselves to generosity. They support not only their poor, but ours as well, as everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. Do you understand? Once there was a day when a group of people loved God and loved each other and God's world so much that a miracle happened. That this new community that was just unprecedented formed. And one of the leaders said, there is now neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, no barriers, no hostility, for all are one in Christ Jesus. So, gang, who's welcome here at our church? Everybody, poor and rich, black and white, young and old, Democrat and Republican, atheist, agnostic, skeptic, Buddhist, Muslim, Christian, Wicca, straight, gay, trans, depressed, happy, addict, married, single, divorced, got it together, fallen apart. If you came today because you love Jesus, if you came here under protest because somebody else loves Jesus and you couldn't get out of it, if you came because you're desperate for help and not sure where else to look, it is not an accident that you are here. It was Jesus's plan because he said he was going to build his church and his church is a place where everybody's welcome and everybody means you. If you're a follower of Jesus and this is your church, that means that, like Jesus, you have a heart that just says welcome for everybody who comes into your life any moment in any day. Because that's the movement that he started. Everybody's welcome. In your neighborhood, at your work, in line to get coffee. Attractive people. People who you don't think of are attractive. Likeable people. Unlikable people. Jesus' plan was that his family would grow one person, one conversation, one invitation, one expression of caring and love at a time. Where I usually grocery shop, there's a woman who works at the checkout counter, and I always try to go to her line. She knows who I am. She knows what I do. She's actually come to our church a couple of times, and now when I see her, the first thing she'll tell me is if she came to church last weekend. 
If she did not go, she'll say, God sent you to me. I know I need God. I need to worship. I need to learn. And she'll make the checkout line a little confessional. And she'll let me know about a few other sins since the last time that she came. She's ringing up my grocery. I'm ringing up her sins. It's a, it's a holy little moment. Sometimes she'll say to the shopper behind me, what about you? Where were you in church last weekend? <laughs> Sobering to think how sometimes especially when I think I need to be busy. I, I, I think about how hurried I need to be. I can be in line at a grocery store or at a coffee shop or at a gas station and not even notice this is a human being that God loves right in front of me. But Jesus always noticed. Not because he's trying to make a sale or something, just because everybody's welcome to God. From the beginning, Jesus' church has grown. One person, one relationship, one conversation, one expression of care at a time. That's how he builds it. And his plan is for everybody who's a part of his church to be little agents of love where you work and where you live and where you shop. You never know who God is sending into your life. You never know where somebody is waiting, aching for one spiritual conversation, one prayer, one invitation from you. This is the great truth now with Jesus. Everybody's welcome. Nobody's supposed to be on the outside. And then, second great truth that Jesus clarified, proclaimed in his day is, in God's eyes, in God's care, nobody's perfect. This is important because religious communities, including Christian ones, have a way of dividing people up into the good guys and the bad guys, the insiders and the outsiders, quite often in superficial ways. And Jesus was famous for insisting that true goodness is not a matter of outward behavior, not appearance, but of a transformed heart, of a, of a stream of thoughts and, and feelings and desires and perceptions and intentions, and that only God can do this. He once put it like this, no one is good except God alone. Nobody's perfect. He insisted, actually, it's religious leaders, kind of sobering for people like me, who pride themselves on correct belief and behavior, who are in fact most at risk and need God the most. On the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So, in the new community, in this community, no hiding, no pretending, no impressing anybody, no reputation building. When you go to work, you may have to look strong. When you go to school, you may have to look smart. We are the island of misfit toys. This is where we celebrate the recognition and public confession of spiritual and moral inadequacy. You do not clean yourself up to come here. My mom is the cleanest person I have ever known. When I was a little child, we would wear saddle shoes. Anybody remember saddle shoes? And my mom would wash the shoelaces of our saddle shoes every day. She scoured the guest bathroom in our house every day, even when we did not have a guest there. She is now 83 years old. It was her birthday on Friday, and I was with her, and, and we have somebody now who comes in every once in a while to help clean the little condo where she lives. Guess what my mother does to that condo before the cleaning helper comes? <laughs> she cleans the condo. Like, Mom, this is defeating the whole idea. The whole point is they're supposed to come. To no, but I don't want them to think I have a dirty condo. Well, that's the point. 
You don't clean you up. Jesus will clean you up. That's his job. And we come, not because we don't need him, because we do. Doesn't matter how long we have been following him. We always need him. All we have from one moment to the next is a spiritual reprieve, as long as we're depending on him. Who's messed up? Who's got ego problems, family problems, emotional problems, financial problems, pride problems, sin problems, moral problems? Who needs God? Everybody. We all do. Who has arrived? Who doesn't have any secrets? Who here is normal, healthy, strong, uh, secure, spiritually self-sufficient? Who's got it all together? Nobody. Spiritually and morally, we are all in the same boat. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Humanity's fate, apart from the grace of God, expressed supremely through Jesus. This is the consistent testimony of the writers of Scripture, although I know it is countercultural in our day. The humanity of fate, apart from the grace and power of God, is brokenness, fallenness, inadequacy, sin, guilt, judgment, death, and hell. We're just lost. Next week, we're starting a series called The Way. You know, we're called not just to be Christians, not just to try to settle the heaven deal, to be disciples, to be followers of Jesus. And to be a disciple, you've got to have a way of life, a concrete, non-legalistic uh, expression, way to arrange your life to, to be with God and receive power from Him to be transformed. And this series... Uh, I have higher hopes for it than anyone that we have done before, is the purpose is to make a life of discipleship real and concrete to very ordinary people. How do I surrender to God? How do I uh, have my mind transformed by engaging in Scripture? How do I pray so that I can increase my conscious contact with God? How do I examine and confess and make amends and enter into fellowship and, and do my work? And so I'm hoping every one of you will make a commitment to be a part of this series. We have a, a devotional calendar we're giving away next week so that this can be a part of your daily life, my daily life. And I hope everybody will get into a life group for the duration of that series so that all of us will have a safe place to talk honestly about where do I struggle? Where do I need help? Because everybody's welcome, but nobody's perfect. And then a third great truth that Jesus modeled and proclaimed, especially with the coming of the Holy Spirit after he ascended into heaven. Anything's possible. And again, this truth comes right from Jesus. He's talking with his disciples about how hard it is for the rich to be saved. And they were stunned because they thought, as people tend to do, of course, riching, being rich, means that you're blessed by God. So they asked, well, if rich people can't be saved, who can? Jesus says, with man, with human beings, this is impossible. But not with God. With God, all things are possible. And we see this when he starts the church. Remember, he's going to build it on the rock. That's Simon. And the other disciples are thinking, seriously, Peter, who leapt out of the boat and sank in the water because he didn't have enough faith. Peter, to whom Jesus was just about to say, get behind me, Satan, because Peter could not keep his mouth shut. Peter, who could not even stay awake to pray with Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane before the crucifixion. Peter, who bragged, Jesus, even if everybody else denies you, I will not, and then denied him three times before the sun came up. Peter, who tried to leap to Jesus' defense by grabbing a soldier's sword and was so inept, all he could do was cut off the soldier's ear, and Jesus had to pat it back on the guy and apologize for Peter. Peter's going to be the rock? Uh-huh. 
Uh-huh. Because anything's possible. And then the Holy Spirit comes and Peter stands up and preaches and thousands of people follow Jesus. A greedy tax collector named Zacchaeus will, will become a poster boy for generosity. That's a miracle. A five times married, shacked up Samaritan woman will become Jesus' first designated preacher. That's a miracle. Church's greatest enemy, Saul, will become its greatest champion, change the course of human thought and history, Paul. And the church goes on and on and on. And then one day, and then one day, in 1873, eight men and five women in this community got together and said, hey, what if we start a little outpost of Jesus Church right here in Menlo Park? And they did. And they prayed, and they gave, and they served, and they loved. And after 50 years, that church that started out with only 13 members after 50 years had eight members. That's not great church growth. (laughs) And the denomination wanted to shut it down. But those eight said, we don't think so. We think anything's possible. And they could have no idea that because of their faithfulness now, we'd have campuses from San Jose to South San Francisco that get to be a part. And now it's our turn. You might be exploring the faith. Uh, You might be just checking our church out. That's great. Take your time. Uh, I hope you do that. But if you follow Jesus, and if this is your church home, I'm asking you to pray. I'm asking you to get into a community, get into real relationship. Don't just be a chronic visitor. Get into a life group. I'm asking you to roll up your sleeves and serve in some volunteer capacity because God has gifted you and people need what it is that you could serve them with and you have a need to be useful to others. I'm asking you to trust God enough to be generous with your finances and tithe 10% right off the top because you need to know that you cannot outgive God. And I'm asking you to do this in the anything's possible spirit of Jesus, cause the thing is, he is still building his church. Last weekend, I loved, because I got to float around to a number of different campuses. I was in Menlo Park, and down in San Jose, and Saratoga, and Mountain View, and I wish you could have been with me just to hear story after story after story. A young mom with three kids, five and under, that you would think would just be exhausted, said, yep, it's a lot of work, but Uh, I got a burden for other moms with little kids, and God's going to help me and a friend start a ministry for young moms. And then another woman came up who has known the pain of infertility and the ache of longing to have children and not have them, and saying, God is using me and my pain to do a ministry for other women, for other couples that struggle with this ache, with this challenge. Another man told me, I was diagnosed with cancer not long ago, and I knew I needed help, and three people that I knew told me I should go to some place called Menlo Church. And I did, and it's changed my life. And his wife is in tears as he's telling me this story. A skeptic non-believer said, I found a place where I can think and learn. I still don't believe, but I found a place where I can do that. A doubter woman came up and said, I found a place where it's okay, a church where it's okay to ask questions and doubt. A guy came up to me who loves his man cave and said he's actually started a man cave ministry for other guys. To meet the man who was resurrected from his man cave on the third day. And, and maybe your spouse wants you to be resurrected out of your man cave, but that's a whole nother story. Do you realize, do you realize what Jesus talked about 2,000 years ago? You guys are doing this. So what if? What if we prayed and served and dreamed and gave and loved 
And God just kept building his church. I mean, anything's possible. What if we kept launching campuses as God blessed just to be part of a church that's so much bigger than us, but we get to do our part. What if we launched a campus in the East Bay and then what if there was a little lighthouse that was part of our church up in San Francisco and on the, on the coast and in the interior? What if, what if, what if someday by God's grace, everybody in the Bay Area lived within 15 minutes of a campus of this church? How about this what if? What if you as a congregation cheered and loved and cared for young staff members, young pastors so vibrantly that in an era when we live right now, uh, Barna did a study over this recently, over the last 20 years, the average age of a pastor has gotten 10 years older. We live in a day when increasingly young people are not seized, not gripped by the beauty of the church. What if you all loved those folks so much that this became a church that was like a magnet where gifted adults, young and old, would say, I don't care so much about money. I don't care so much about building a resume. I don't care so much about security, but I'd give my right arm to be part of building his church. What if, through our denomination eco, through ministry networks like Transforming the Bay with Christ, we were able to pray with and partner with other churches, because there's so many great ones around the Bay, all kinds of them, and church leaders and ministry organizations. And what if the Bay Area, which is the one part of our country that has never experienced a revival, could experience one? Not a one-time, emotion-led, temporary wave, but a long-term, biblically grounded, chronic, lasting movement of Jesus that will turn back the tides of consumerism and materialism and secularism and bring vibrant spiritual health and transforming power of the gospel to Silicon Valley, to every community, from the shooting-ravaged town of Gilroy to the fire-damaged communities of Napa. Because the thing is, he is still building his church. It is his church. He thought it up. He created it. He authorized it. He resourced it when it had nothing. He launched it when there was no idea of it. He continues to superintend it no matter how badly we mess it up. And he has no intention of letting it go until it fulfills the purpose for which he created it. And no matter what problems it faces, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that is the ministry that you have been called to devote your life to. Others have come before us. Others will come after us. This is our day. This is our moment. Let's be all in. You all in? Let's pray. Let's pray. God, thank you for the church. There's never been anything like it. Thank you for the dream. All of humanity gathered together. No barriers, no separation, nobody left out with love triumphant, and the cross, the suffering love, the compassion and generosity and servanthood of Jesus at the core of our great and glad, joyful generosity. Thank you, God, for the church. Help every one of us, God, that follows Jesus to be a part of it and do something great. And we're in, God. Best we can be, we're in. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody agreed with this prayer, and everybody said, amen. Amen.